0: Hello and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African-American Studies, where writers of African-American life and culture discuss their new books. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and today I'm happy to speak with Shireen Sherrard-Johnson, professor in the English department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and author of Dorothy West's Paradise, a biography of class and color, published by Rutgers University Press in 2012. If you want to learn more about Dorothy West, geographical and social landscapes, intraracial class and color, and how they all come together in West's writings, you need to read Shireen Sherrard Johnson's book. In our conversation, the professor discusses Dorothy West, her movement from Boston, Massachusetts, to Oak Bluffs, Martha's Vineyard, from Oak Bluffs to Harlem, New York, from Harlem across the ocean to Moscow, Russia. And how West's writing reflects her travels to these various locations. I'm sure you'll enjoy this lively interview. Listen in. Today, we're talking with Shireen Sherrod Johnson, and she's going to talk to us about her new book, Dorothy West's Paradise A Biography of Class and Color. Good afternoon, Shireen. How are you?
1: I'm very well. Good
0: afternoon, Sherry. <laughs> um, okay, great. Let's just jump into it. Before we talk about the text, can you just tell us a few a uh, few words about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Mm-hmm. Um, lived there much of my early life with my family. My family actually migrated; many of them from um, the southern part of Louisiana, um, New Orleans, and, and also Shreveport. But I grew up in Los Angeles, very much in an Angeleno. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to um, UCLA for undergraduate and then to Cornell to pursue my PhD in, in English. Mm-hmm. And um, it's from there that I really got started in my commitment to um, Black women's literature, 19th and 20th century African American literature, and especially the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dissertation was on the Harlem Renaissance and the interaction between visual art, visual culture, and literature. And that was the main project at that time. And I've gone on to teach many courses and to write articles in that area, especially um, not just the Harlem Renaissance, but around recovering the lives of black women artists and writers, especially has been an interest of mine. And um, some of that interest has led to um, the book that we're going to talk about today.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about who your mentors were and maybe how they affected the ultimate choice you made in, in the area of study that you like.
1: Right. I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting. I always loved um, reading and writing and I feel like instrumental in my early stages when I was an
0: undergraduate,
1: um, people like Valerie Smith and Richard Yarbrough were professors at UCLA at the time um, really opened my eyes up to the field of African-American literature. I really see them as groundbreakers in that field. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I made the transition to Cornell, I was very much trying to keep in mind um, both my work as a critic and also my work as a creative writer, because I also uh, write creatively as well. Mm -hmm. And Cornell was a great place for linking those two together. Um, There I worked with people like Hortense Spillers and Ken McLean. Um, and from Cornell, I went to uh, my first job at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, and there, um, the late Nellie McKay was certainly instrumental in, um, bringing that kind of integrity,
0: um, to the work that we pursue. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, she's affected, she affected me as well in the choices that I made and where I decided to go in my scholarship, particularly with black women writers, um, All right. So good. Let's, let's move into talking about the book. Uh, tell us a little bit how you came to write Dorothy West's Paradise Biography of Class and Color.
1: Well, um, Dorothy West, um, was a writer that we very much associate with the Harlem Renaissance and having written a book um, that primarily focused on women writers during that period, I always felt a little guilty that there wasn't a chapter on Dorothy West um, in that first book that I did portraits of the new Negro woman. And part of the reason is because she comes to Harlem very young and she doesn't publish her first novel until the late forties, until 1948 when she publishes The living is easy. And because of that, she fits uneasily, I think, within the markers we often think of as the Harlem Renaissance, even though she's considered a Harlem Renaissance writer. Um, and so I've done some work on her. i would published an article on her before in the African-American Review, and she just lingered um, in my mind. Um, during my dissertation research, I found a manuscript, a handwritten manuscript of The Living is Easy, and it was just wonderful to read through that and to kind of hold that in my hands. Uh, but, you know, so she just lingered as someone who I wanted to return to. Um, it was just fascinated by her um, work on class, especially, and how she looked at class relations among um, Black women and, and, and men, and, and not just in terms of, you know, Black and white as a kind of class divide, but mm-hmm. intra-racially as well. Mm-hmm. And I think those interests, yeah. stayed with me. And then um, I was actually on the island of Martha's Vineyard in Oak Bluff's, doing research on another writer, Emma Denham Kelly Hawkins, who at the time was um, presumed to be a 19th century African-American writer. Later, it was discovered that she'd been misidentified, um, and it turns out that she was, in fact, Anglo-American. Wow. (laughs) Um, And so I was doing this research on her really at the moment that um, that news broke, and I experienced a kind of rift in terms (laughs) of, what am I doing? Who am I looking for? uh, In terms of just the work of recovery. And I literally found myself on Dorothy West Boulevard um, in the area in which she lived um, in Oak Bluffs. And from there, I went to the uh, Martha's Vineyard Museum where they have historical archives. Um, Many taped interviews with Dorothy West. Um, Her Vineyard Gazette articles are also cataloged there. And so um, I began to, you know, I think then do the early foundational work of returning to her and thinking about her um, not just in terms of doing a literary biography, but also a biography that was very much centered on place. Mm -hmm. And that was really, I think, making that shift. Um, It's very similar to the work I've done in terms of recovering um, Black women's lives, Black women's writing, but um, a little bit different, I think, in that I very much wanted to explore um, the issue around class division and also space and geography within her writing, but also
0: within African-American culture in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it seems like she literally jumped up and, and asked you to write about her this time, right? <laughs> I felt a little like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So then it seems that there's, or maybe I should ask the question, is there a problem you're trying to solve in this text? I know that you're interested, or you said that you're interested in recovering or continuing the project of recovering Black women's writing from this period, Um, but is there a particular problem that you are trying to address in the text?
1: I think the problem is understanding the
0: relationship between,
1: um, or understanding, I guess, the the subtleties and intricacies of class in the African-American community. Um, It was my sense that you couldn't just think about class in the Black community the way we thought about it in mainstream Culture mm-hmm. um, that those lines are often muddled. That um, wealth, um, even when it's passed on, it's, it's sometimes not passed on intergenerationally in the same way that it has been amongst like established families, like the Kennedys and the Vanderbilts. Mm-hmm. Um, there are fits and starts, and many of these are a response to the um, you know economic um, persistent economic discrimination uh, within the black community. And so, I was very interested in how um, those individuals um, struggled within mainstream culture to, um, surmount difficulties, the kinds of strategies they use to negotiate, um, to create a space for themselves that would be, um, alongside, but also separate from uh, mainstream society. And I saw the community of Oak Bluffs as one such site, (laughs) Um, and in my book, I think about it almost as a nationalist site, but it's not usually how people would think about nationalism because usually the upper middle class um, black youth, they've been um, in many ways considered you know the bourgeoisie, you know, going back to E. Franklin Frazier. Right. It, it very much has been the underclass. It's been the focus of study. And it makes sense because that's the majority um, of the majority and the, the hyper focus within um, black studies would be on the underclass, um, but I think that um, looking at the connections between um, those two groups, uh, the notion of what um, some sociologists and economists refer to as linked fate mm-hmm. um, and how that's changed over time, especially mm-hmm. in a moment now when we are really dealing with very deep class, class divisions um, throughout the country among all ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought this would be a, both a timely project, but one that would also answer questions that I had about trying to understand the cost of class
0: mobility of women. Mm. Okay, good. All right, so then you begin uh, your the biography uh, by discussing the beach in Oak Bluffs, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about your decision to do that? How did it come about? Yeah, well,
1: I, I think I wanted to shake up the form of biography that begins um, with
0: birth and kind of
1: ends with death. Yes. <laughs> uh, because that wasn't the kind of project that I wanted to do and so I felt like by beginning by discussing a beach I would um, f- keep the focus on space which was something I really tried to continue to think about throughout the book as yes. a factor in terms of class environment lifestyle all of those things um, but also uh, in that way be able to trace uh, not just the history of a writer's life but also a history of a place and how they converge mm-hmm. um, with the North and West and the story about beach um, that you're referring to is one that um, Dorothy West returned to again and again. It's how um, she feels as if these interlopers from New York um, lost the beach um, for the Black Bostonians, a beach that they had free access to from their enclave um, in the highlands of Oak Bluffs, which later became uh, privatized. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a result, um, they ended up having to use a different beach which was the public beach, a beach that would later become known as the Inkwell. And there are lots of stories about how that beach got its name. Um, But Dorothy's particular interest in this beach is that it represents a kind of loss of what may have been a tenuous interracial harmony. Mm -hmm. And that loss is sparked by essentially the um, failures of understandings in terms of behavior and respectability um, and a kind of disjunction that occurs between Um, the African-Americans from New York and the ones from um, supposedly from Boston. Mm -hmm. Um, But smuggled within there are all kinds of issues around Southern migration as well. Um, A lot of the things that she associates with New Yorkers are the similar things that she would associate with Southern um, immigrants to um, Boston um, as well. And so um, it's really there that you get to see um, where some of these class divisions out, -hmm. um, and how they're defined by region, not just by economics, Mm -hmm. um, and certainly not just by by race. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was, I think, one of the reasons why I wanted to start there, to really foreground that my perspective is going to have this focus on class, but was also going to be very interested in how um, how, by moving through different spaces, Dorothy West's perspective changes. So... Um, Oak Bluffs is one important site in the book. There are other sites that we move to um, throughout. So the book, I wouldn't say it's completely structured along spatial lines, but mm-hmm. it's, um, the story of these places I think is in, in many ways um, is a story that I'm also trying to tell as well in a specific period of
0: time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the connection that you draw between um, the history of place and the author's life is definitely a main tenet throughout the entire, uh, text that I really enjoyed. Um, Can you just talk a little bit about what the relationship is between geographical um, and social uh, landscapes as well as the individual?
1: Yeah. Well, I think on one hand, this is an artist's journey, right? So it's looking at the places that um, she drew from both in her fiction, but also in terms of what inspired her to write and inspire the interest she had. And I think um, beginning in Boston is certainly a critical site for her um, within a rich Black community with that long history of abolition, but also a very much a writerly history as well. Um, That was really where her early years were nurtured um, in Boston. Um, There are certainly literary foremothers associated with that site, mainly um, Pauline Hopkins uh, as being an early writer there, but also... um, Trotter's newspaper. So she really grew up in this literary environment, also an environment um, that was highly matriarchal in terms of her mother and her aunts, who were very much strong women, um, determined to um, raise children that would be able to um, gain a foothold in society. Um, so, Boston, I think, is very instrumental in her early years. <laughs> very early, they do begin to go to Oak Bluffs. And over the course of um, her life, Dorothy goes from there to ultimately to Harlem, at one point to Moscow and to London. Mm-hmm. And in every space, I look at these spaces um, or consider them as possibly or potentially utopic sites. That is the sense that what about these places might make them protective spheres either for artistic development or spheres that can be, um, I'm not sure if insulated is quite the right word, but maybe antidotes to racism and to Jim Crow, right? Mm -hmm. So part of what she's looking for in the groups that she's surrounded by are looking for places where Black art, Black writing can emerge, um, not so much unfettered, but maybe in a way that it is... um, less claustrophobic right mm-hmm. then um, the society that um, the segregated society that evolved um, out of um, after reconstruction mm-hmm. um, and moving especially into the 20s and into the 30s um, with the harlem renaissance that um, optimism is very much present it, it diminishes obviously with the depression historically so there, there's a of historical art going along here as well but looking at what when, when she moves through these different spaces, what she's looking for mm-hmm. uh, is often, a, again, a, a kind of space that would allow um, an art that can challenge, I think, some of our expectations of class mm-hmm. and race and, and gender, but also poke fun at them as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of us writing is very satirical. And so, you know, it's often tricky to determine when she is very much invested in the kinds of representations that she's creating or when she's really making fun of them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's led to some misconceptions about her work and her life um, as well. And like all individuals, she's a complicated person and changes over time. Mm -hmm. And as a writer, that was something I
0: did. I had to struggle with. Mm -hmm. Um, um, For sure. You draw on Alice Beck's definition of autoethnography and I was really uh, struck by um, the definition, um, which if I read it here, it says um, uh, self-reflective narratives in which the author cons- the authors consider and examine themselves as native to the environment of examination. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how um, Dorothy West's uh, text or her texts okay can fall into auto ethnography?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I think it, she's uh, she always saw herself, I think, as an insider-outsider. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, you know, she was a product of all of those environments that um, I've talked about in terms of both New England and Boston. But, you know, her mother was from the South. and so She also felt she could write about the South as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that insider-outsider perspective, both gave her a kind of legitimacy and authenticity when writing about those spaces, but it's also what allowed her to kind of pull back um, occasionally and comment and critique um, what she saw, um, some of these destructive maneuvers within um, the, the spaces that she occupied, especially around marriage. And she wrote so often about marriage and marriage as a possible consolidator of, capital that allows um, black middle-class success, but also when it is viewed in such um, um, stark terms, often leads to unhappiness and dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a theme that carries out um, through Metric work. And I feel like um, looking at those, the the people who move within those spaces and that sort of insider, outsider perspective, um, she's almost like uh, one of her um, influences, Dora Neale Hurston, Mm -hmm. who, Um, certainly in her work in terms of collecting stories as an anthropologist, but also writing her own stories, adopted that similar kind of stance Mm -hmm. where she could understand and was definitely part of the community, but also hold herself apart to offer a
0: a kind of commentary that would allow others in. Yes, definitely. Okay, so your mention of Zora Neale Hurston um, as a mentor to Dorothy West, there's another line in which I can see a correlation between their work or, um, maybe not uh, correlation, but mm, elements of similarity in their work, which is the blurring of fact and truth. Um, can you talk a bit about African-American, the African-American narrative convention really, because it's a legacy in which they're, they're, um, engaging of blurring fact and truth and how, uh, Dorothy West follows or does not follow in that literary convention.
1: Yeah, I think in um well, I guess to talk about that as a, a kind of convention. I mean, um, obviously you know, Henry Louis Gates talked a lot about this idea of the trickster figure within um, mm-hmm. African American narratives, and the idea of I think very early even in the slave narratives um, needing to um, tell the truth. And I think this is uh, Zora Neale Hurston's line: "Tell tell the truth, but tell it slant." You know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that would achieve, and at least with the slave narratives, their political goals, right? So using the literary conventions to tell a kind of true story, a kind of witnessing or testifying. And that's very present, I think, from the 19th century on into the early part of the 20th century Um, with um, Zora Nell Hurston and many women writers actually from the Harlem Renaissance. There was also a kind of pressure to disguise um, certain aspects of their biography, um, especially at a time when what was being rewarded was the young male ingenue. Mm -hmm. And so women often, um, Dora Neale Hurston's an example of this, but um, there are others as well, um, often shaved years off their age Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to make themselves appear, you know, more appealing and young, you know, to that literary
0: audience. Brand new.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that's still present. Right. Right. Um, in our culture. So that was there. But there was also um, a way that um, for Dorothy West, in terms of her own life writing, very much created a persona um, that would um, mask or um, emphasize certain aspects of her life and maybe de-emphasize others. And she told these stories. Um, I, I don't quite argue that they're necessarily political but they're um, a story that very much fits in line with um, what the history is that she wants to um, convey about her family, about her own personal history. Um, And so one of the things that you find out or that there's a lot in her early years in terms of her family structure, especially centering around her mother and the different ways she cast her mother um, as a strong figure in her life, the story she tells about her family. Um, But there isn't very much about her adolescence really, Right. Right. get to her um writing and then you can begin to follow her history um through the writing and and i think um as a scholar sifting through fact and fiction and you know when you um there were the lines were definitely blurred and many of the stories that she wrote people have read as autobiographical Mm -hmm. and certainly they have those elements but they also stand as fiction on their own and so um Within my text, I didn't necessarily try and sift through and say, this is fact, this is fiction. Right. Um, I was very much interested in the interplay between the two mm-hmm. and what was, you know, what stories, um, rather, instead of trying to figure out whether or not the story she told about her mother is true, mm-hmm. um, what is that story? How does that resonate? Why is this a story that she returned
0: to again and again? Sure, sure, sure. That's my interest there. Sure, sure. Particularly, obviously, in terms of class and color, right? Right. Yeah, Um, yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's move to Moscow now. Let's go to Russia, your chapter on to Russia with love. Uh, Here, I can definitely see a clear uh, return to the connection between nature and personal and or social landscapes. Uh, In this chapter now, you you bookend your discussion of Dorothy West's writings with Nancy Prince's um, I guess, narrative, a narrative of, In the Life and Travels of Mrs. Nancy Prince, written by herself, in 18, published in 1853, and then at the end, Andrea Lee's Russia uh, Journal, published in 1979. Can you just talk a bit about the literary legacy in which you've placed these women, all three of these women, and how you're fitting Dorothy West in?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was very interested, and as I began to do the research, the contextual research for this chapter um about the black presence in Russia and how early it went. The idea that even in the you know eighteen fifties you right. had women, um black women traveling to Russia while slavery was still going on in the US. I and, was so and,
0: surprised by that. It
1: was really, really eye opening. Right. That this is a free woman, you know, she gets on a boat and she goes to Russia. She's not there as a slave. She's as part she's part of um a diplomatic, you know, attache, you know, that her husband is working for the Tsar, you know, and she um offers this travel narrative from that period. And I thought that was a fascinating um, way to think about what it meant then some 70 you know, years later for Dorothy West to be on a ship going to Moscow um, with this black and white group to make a film about um, oppression in the U.S. And what that, uh, trying to put her in a kind of continuum to not look at that as something that, you know, as a blip, right? But as part of a larger story about black women's travel writing. And I think in many ways that, that chapter is it's about Dorothy West, it's about Moscow, but it's also about um, black women um, cosmopolites, right? Making their way um, through the world, interacting with different people in different cultures and how they have to contend with um, the biases of race and gender and class that enact upon them. Mm-hmm. And that was very much present in Nancy Prince's narrative. And it's also present um, even into the late 20th century with um, Andrea Lee's journal, although um, she very much quotes um, her um, how she how she is read visibly, and that she really doesn't disclose um, that she's African American until three quarters of the way into the book, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so then as a reader, it's hard to discern right how racial difference appears there. The gender, um, uh, the gaze that that's certainly present in her work, um, but I definitely see her or see these, um, part of why I use them as bookends for West story is to try and understand, um, what, uh, what Russia might've symbolized beyond just say, um, a, a communist, um, experiment, mm-hmm. um, or, or even, um, as something that, demonstrates any of the author's commitment to Marxism or a kind of radicalism because one would never characterize really Dorothy or, or even um, Andrea Lee in that way. Right. So part of what they're looking for in Russia and what they get is a certain um, perspective on class ratification and how under a social system it might be different. Um, but what they don't necessarily, neither of them come back uh, communist, right? And in Nancy Fred's, feelings about Russia are very much, um, are obviously earlier, right? This is Tsarist Russia, Imperial Russia mm-hmm. that she's visiting. Um, and yet there's a strange consistency amongst this 150 year span. And I know historians probably think, oh, how can you put together these such different um, right. time periods? Right. Um, but I really do see that, you know, my, what I'm following is the idea of, you know, the Black woman traveler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't think, we think of of uh, their world, especially in the early 19th century, is being very circumscribed as opposed to one in which boundaries were more fluid and which people learned to negotiate and manipulate expectations in order to achieve a kind of mobility that we often don't expect women in that era to have.
0: Right, right, right. I wanted to read a quote from uh, that's from the chapter where you're kind of talking about how all three come together um, and it says, Quote, well, the frame stories included here demonstrate that Black women's perspectives on their various Russian sojourns are highly attentive to the social reception of their bodies with that space, the luxurious and bourgeois indulgence that their specialized status allows, and the contrast between their treatment in Russia and their lives behind the veil of American race relations. They also demonstrate that travel writing. Is by its very nature impressionistic and irre- irrevocably informed by the personal. Uh, end quote. Can you just talk a bit about the importance of travel in general, uh, but to Russia in particular, to the development of identity as Black women from Prince West and Lee?
1: Mm-hmm. Certainly. Um, well, I think in in general, what it allowed. I mean, each, it allows something different for each of these women because they're writing from very different specific historical periods. But I think what it enabled, certainly for Dorothy West and others who were part of that uh, Russia trip, was um, a removal from the context of U.S. racism that, in many ways, for people who are middle class, they really saw the circumscription of um, access to things which financially they should be able to do, like eat in restaurants or go to the ballet or these kinds of cultural events that middle class people were beginning to partake in, mm-hmm. that they were not allowed to partake in because of Jim Crow. Um, even Jim Crow, even as it stretched into the north, and so being in, um, they had an acute perspective of being prevented or of not being able to access that. And so in Russia, because of their specialized status as foreigners, right? Because precisely because they are us blacks they are then um treated with the specialized status where they have an access to a lifestyle that even um russian citizens during this time did not have an access to right um, and so it shifts their perspective in terms of understanding themselves possibly as americans um but also many of them just talk about understanding themselves as human on a certain level right mm-hmm. And that um stepping outside the um context of race relations in the u.s um allows one to see um, other kinds of ethnic distinctions, national distinctions, and, and maybe um, it changes your perspective on yourself. I think many of the travel writers talk about um, not really feeling like um, American citizens in the U.S., but then abroad sure. have a perspective of themselves as Amer- or understand themselves as American, mm-hmm. um, for better or for worse, right, in that context. Um, and so I think there's a kind of, Freedom That Dorothy Westerly experiment, uh, experiences there, um, even for someone who had had a, a relatively sheltered um, life, mm-hmm. um, she experiences the sense of freedom that allows her to explore, experiment both in terms of her own sexuality and in terms of her writing. And I'm not suggesting so much the writing that she gets done there, but especially the writing that she does afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like she comes back from that experience, if not a communist, certainly um, with a different perspective on class relations that she then puts into her fiction. Um, and for the, I think for, you know, Nancy Prince, um, her her definition as a, a traveler in many ways allows her to escape um, the noose of slavery at one point, even using her Russian affiliation to prevent people from bringing her um, off the ship when the sh- a ship is docked and, and a slave state and and she's able to use that protection right. um, of herself as not, you know, not a, not a subject, not subjected to the noose or, or the lash in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do think that um, travel in that sense, and, and just in terms of, I think, even just thinking of black women as travelers, when the predominant notion of even the fugitive slave would be that of a male, right. Mm-hmm. A male escaping sort of on his own, mm-hmm. as opposed to women who in fact are all you know free and, and moving, um, you know, with a contested mobility, right. It's not as if they can go anywhere they want. Right. And certainly, um, not obviously, um, white women also faced these, um, challenges as well. And, um, works like Jennifer Stedman's work and Cheryl Fish, um, they really look at black and white women's travel narratives, um, especially from women who are not elite women, right? Mm-hmm. Women who are not on these kinds of grand tours that are sponsored by their families and chaperone, right? Women who travel in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was very useful to think um, to think about um, people like Dorothy West or, or even Nancy Prince as, mm-hmm. as um, travelers who didn't have quite the same benefits as these well off socialites, and so had, in many ways, I would suggest a
0: richer experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about Lee? I mean, if we think about all that you're saying, how do we factor in then with uh, Andrea Lee the fact that she kind of, I mean, in, in, in not just, you know, Russia Journal, but it seems to be a main tenant in, in all of her writing, a kind of um, really. Uh, holding back when it comes to identity or I don't know how to, if, if holding back is the right term or if it's just um, it's very tense, very tense, this idea of her being a black woman. So how did, would you say that she or the development her identity, development of her identity as a black woman comes out in her text?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, that's a, it's an ongoing theme in her work. I mean, in some ways, I think people have considered Lee and, and many, you know, there's a lot of work on Sarah Phillips, you know, which is the yeah. work that is about identity and all of and very much focused on race as opposed to her other work yeah. in which identity is much more muted yeah. in that way. And the emphasis there, I would say, is really on gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, one difference is that, you know, Andrea Lee becomes, she is to some extent an expatriate, right? She leaves, she doesn't come back. Right. <laughs> um, unlike, you know, Dorothy West, right? Who comes back and is part of this community and, and continues to write out of that context. Um, Andre Lee ultimately, you know, lives in Italy, you know, um, has a family there. And I think for her, you know, so she, I I think her, um, her perspective, which is, you know, definitely an internationalist perspective, isn't one that like the earlier black writers like Baldwin um, or even someone like Jesse Fawcett, who all did the similar kinds of travel, but all felt to wanted to cast their lot with their brethren in the U.S. To use their language. That is not, um, and really doesn't do that. And I think, um, I don't know that we can look to Russian journal necessarily for the seeds of why that happens in her work, but certainly the perspective that she takes there, which is very much a cloaked, protective one, um, that only at certain moments highlights her visibility or the visibility of race, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that is part of, I think, a growing... um, a growing trend in um, what people would call post-civil rights literature, right? Mm-hmm. How to um, rethink a different relationship to racial identity, um, one that is um, a hybrid right? In many ways and, and I think is part of the you know, discourse around mixed race, but one that is also, I think, because of the internationalist um, um, impulse in her work um, that is also um, a kind of a throwback to the early cosmopolitan literature of people like Henry James in some ways, right? It's mm-hmm. also, there. there's also that aspect to it as, uh, as well of the notion of someone as a kind of freed up citizen of the world mm-hmm. that um, she tries to bring um, to her work. Although, you know, her I- identity is, it's, it's not as if it's, it's also present.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, they in moments and flashes. Sure, sure, definitely. I mean, I guess, it, it, you know, one can definitely walk away um, from Lee or any any of the other two, uh, Dorothy West, as well as Prince, saying that whether one speaks of it or, you know, speaks of it freely or is restrained in their discussion, restrained in their discussion of um, race, their racial identity, it's still there. It's still present. Right. It's still something that we're looking for, at least. Um, and maybe, I guess, I guess maybe this is a nice movement into uh, the, to the question of performance as race. Um, you know, what role does performance, something that's obviously a main theme in um, Dorothy West's writing as well, um, is a question of performance and what role it plays in the development of, one's identity um, as coming from a particular class, as coming from, you know, as being Black? Um, What role does performance play, I guess, is the question.
1: Yeah, I think, well, especially around class, um, I think, you know, there's a, a way in which one likes to think of certain kinds of class entitlements as organic in a way like right? something has to do with someone's particular birth or upbringing and this leads to a kind of entitlement that is just you know built on and solidified over the years and I feel like in Dorothy West fiction she's really trying to show how um, those assumptions are really overturned by others ability to perform more effectively the accoutrements of class than those who theoretically would have been born to it right mm-hmm. and I and mean, that's a strong theme in the living is easy yeah where, you know, you have someone like Cleo as an anti-heroine in some way, um, climbing her way and and becoming um, a kind of icon within Black Boston society um, by virtue of being able to perform an idealized notion of middle class or upper middle class Black womanhood simply because of how she looks and her behavior and what she takes on, um, as opposed to the the reality that she's, you know, born in you know, South Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, doesn't really, you know, she is, she, she's not a Bostonian, right? Whereas her daughter Judy, who does have, you know, is a Bostonian because she's darker skin, um, does not fit as easily into the construct of the kind of womanhood that, um, or the kind of, um, womanhood that is being idealized, um, as emblematic of Black achievement and advancement during the moment. Um, So I think in the issue of performance um, relates certainly to class and to gender and and issues. It's very much tied up with issues of respectability and all of those things. I feel like West tries to show our buffers um, created um, by the Black middle class to ensure Um, a kind of economic success and stability, Mm -hmm. Um, but these performances are very tenuous in many ways because they are performances. Um, And also because um, capitalism is very adept at maintaining what it needs to survive. So even as people um, try and find ways to manipulate situations to um, their benefit, like in the living is easy when Cleo is looking for a house that's going to solidify her class position, almost at the same moment that she does this, she also sows the seeds of its own undoing mm-hmm. by doing the very thing that people are concerned that black folks will do, which is taking in borders, right? <laughs> once, they meet, once they're once they in a certain community. And so I think, you know, Westbrook's fun at that and satirizes um, this idea of putting on airs and also all, the cost mm-hmm. that, such performances, um, especially um, if marriage decisions are made um, with um, such blatant um, class um, aspirations in mind, um, that they can result in real personal unhappiness mm-hmm. uh, and often against um, the true wishes of the spirit. Right. And I think that's um, what destroys many of the lives or constricts many of the lives of the character she's looking at. Yeah. Uh, Are people who are so invested in performing a particular kind of racial or class-based identity that is out of sync with um, their
0: inner desires? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one thing that becomes very clear um, to me, or with anyone, I guess, that may read the living is easy, is um, that you know West is acutely aware of the you know intricacies or and, and complexities. And also instabilities, I guess, of interracial class positions. Um, she demonstrates it so well, um, and it kind of suggested to me after reading your chapter that you know, again, this is more than you know. You may find autobiographical elements, but she's being quite critical of the black bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh,
1: yeah. I was just thinking like, that, and I think she is. She is very critical, mm-hmm. and yet that is also, within that critique, there's also a certain admiration, Mm, right? mm. For especially um, the figure um, of Bart Judson in The Living is Easy, who is certainly based on her father, right? The the kind of intrepid, wrecked, witch's story, yeah, being against all odds to achieve this tenuous foothold, right? Mm. There is also an admiration for that Mm. um, at the same time that there's a critique. And I think that's the real tension that's in her work, right? On one hand, wanting to be um wanting to acclaim the achievements right in the midst of great adversity but also um that what it takes sometimes to maintain those achievements um are the things that maybe are not so admirable, right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's very much the tension i think that one experiences when reading her work and also makes her perspective very hard to place sure sure place there i mean i think it's um there is a real, especially as a literary critic, there is a real desire to want to claim "living is easy" is almost an anti-capitalist text, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't quite get there, right? Right, uh, right. I think because there is still that again a little bit that holding back, a little bit of ad- that, a little bit of admiration there, mm-hmm. um, that's still present, and a lot
0: of um, empathy,
1: I think, for the position the characters find themselves in. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about. Um... When you're talking about highlighting, you know, not necessarily making, being very critical of the black bourgeoisie, but also um, in various ways seeming, at, you know, admiring of the same community of people. I It reminds me of some of the difficulties I have or the responses that students have in reading in this text today in, um, you know, 2012 not necessarily being able to see that satire. Um, I was just kind of wondering, you know how do you deal with that? Have you encountered the same thing? Is it difficult to teach a text where the author is being uh, critical, but also you can see that kind of admiration. There's no clear-cut stance of where the individual uh, st- or position on on um, the black bourgeoisie? Yeah, you know,
1: I think it, it can be challenging, but one thing I think students do relate to, and I had this experience in a classroom um, that I went to visit here at Stanford, mm-hmm. as well as that they really do understand the persistence of colorism, mm-hmm. um, not just within the African American community, but within other communities that have been exposed to or under colonial rule mm-hmm. at one point. Mm-hmm. So um, when I was talking to students about the issues, especially around color that appear In a book like The Living is Easy, in which light skin is associated with class standing, right? Mm -hmm. Even if people don't really have that class standing, they're presumed to have it, Mm -hmm. right? The lighter that they are. Um, And that's something that um, within many communities of color, um, people still see, right? And can attest to that as a vestige of racialized hierarchies, right? Mm -hmm. Class and color hierarchies. And so, well, certainly, right, it's a book from, you know, the nineteen. 40s, which actually even looks back to an even earlier time. Yeah. Um, I think that that's where students see um, some connection in terms of still seeing how um, certain ideals around skin color persist in, in their own um, lives and culture. And then I think um, it does require, getting students to understand their own class position requires um, a little more work because I think the um, U.S. is very invested in Um, class not being a barrier to an advancement, right? That's the story, right? Is that you can, um, you know, that's the Horatio Alger myth, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's very critical to the notion of a success in American culture that class is not an impediment. And yet I think a book that shows that these barriers are, you know, they're they're harder to surmount than you think, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Draws attention to students' understanding of their own class status. So often when I'm teaching Dorothy West work, and work, look at class in this way. I find myself asking students to reflect upon: um, Are there any difference between? Dif- is there a difference between, say, how they would categorize themselves and actually what their class status is? Right. So you find often in American society that most people want to identify as middle class, right. even if not right. 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 That seems to be the appropriate stance to have um, for people who are sometimes really more really more upper middle class in terms of what their family income is or working class, right. Mm-hmm. In the same way. And, and so I think um, getting students to understand the nuances mm-hmm. and so the, um, the reality that um, not a lot of people actually shift class over their life. Right. Right. Just the fact that that's an enduring myth of success in our culture. And I feel like um, in looking at both the flexibility um, and Wes being able to poke fun at what class advancement might look like, but also the fact that it, it's it, there's also kind of elastic bounce back as well, right? Mm-hmm. So then despite all the father's success, despite all of um, the mother and Cleo's machinations within "The Living Is Easy," at the end they're destitute, <laughs>
0: right? Life. Right.
1: And so then you wonder, well, has this has this experiment been a success? What does it tell us about? Um, the possibility of being able to pass on wealth, is that something that's specific to communities of color um, or is it something that, say, mainstream
0: also class uh, also struggles with as well? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd say both. I'd say both, yeah. Um, all right, so just kind of as we're talking more and more about color, I want to go to your chapter on two weddings. Oh. Um, yeah, and the, the, can you just, before we can you just outline for, for us what your main objectives within this chapter were?
1: Okay. So the, it's one of the latter chapters in the book, Two Weddings, and it looks at um, D- uh, Dorothy West's novel, The Wedding, mm-hmm. as well as um, Oprah Winfrey's um, interpretation, cinematic interpretation of The Wedding um, as in one of her very early, I think it's almost her first um, endeavor in this area, um, interpretation of the book starting Halle Berry. And in many ways, um, part of why The Wedding was important, Oprah Winfrey's version of it, is that for people who don't know a lot about Dorothy West, it it kind of triggers their memory. Oh, yeah, we did see that movie with Halle Berry on Martha's Vineyard. Right, right. (laughs) Um, And also the production of it, as well as the publication of uh, this book that was billed as the last novel from this writer from the Harlem Renaissance, um, really did bring um, the spotlight back on Dorothy West and in a way that um, allowed... Um, a kind of recovery for her in in popular society, and so in, in that sense, I, I was glad of that of the spotlight being shown back on her. I think just prior to her death. Um, but so that's kind of the background. Um, what I wanted to do in terms of putting into context the um, the, the TV movie version of the wedding and the novel um, was to actually show how um, how in, in many ways our society still can't grasp the concept of people who look white, but are black mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea that in trying to translate this from a book to the screen, they couldn't, they couldn't actually translate that aspect of the book right. um, of this family on the oval where, you know, the heroine is essentially a blonde, blue eye, you know, throwback to her forebears. Yes. <laughs> uh, they can't, and, and can only um, and have to try and use other ways to signify racial mixing mm-hmm. uh, because the concern would be then that people somehow wouldn't relate or wouldn't understand that as a phenomenon. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it, it just speaks to, I think our rigid understanding of racial identity mm-hmm. um, and our investment in visibility, mm-hmm. you know, you have to be able to see them to identify them. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the wedding, I think what, um, what's interesting about the wedding is the idea of looking at those who, in fact, you don't see. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet for various reasons are still, um, even in very complicated ways, um, understanding themselves as African-Americans, mm-hmm. uh, despite the fact that they don't visibly identify. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an aspect that is un- ultimately not really translatable. Right. 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 And that's what I wanted to look at. So the, the two weddings become, um, you know, are definitely connected, but they seem to be advancing, um, very
0: different ideas. Right. Right. Well, so- in- Sorry, sorry, I cut you off. What did you say the last part? Oh, there? no, that was it. Oh, okay, yeah. So it seems to me that um, just going along with what you just said where you, you ended up, it seems that Oprah Winfrey's intention uh, was to show a, a different, another Black community, you know, different from the ones often highlighted in the mainstream to a broader audience. Um, yeah. I don't think that, that she was necessarily speaking to Black audiences out there. Um, but that... But that this other black community exists seems to be a given to West, and she's already she's now moved on to looking at some of the you know intricacies and complexities of being within um, various black communities. So the goals that both texts have are different, right? Would you agree? Disagree?
1: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think what is presented in the film is almost a kind of dreamlike um, yeah. setting. Um, that very much capitalizes on um, achievement, you know, that Black people have kind of achieved this paradise, right, to kind of draw on my, a theme in my title, um, on this island here. And the wedding becomes this, um, can be the celebration of it. And even though there are elements that, that work to upend um, the wedding and the resolution, it still is resolved, right, in a fairly um, conventional way way right mm-hmm. and since the wedding happens whereas in the book the it's not resolved at all right, right. and the real violence um that undergirds the family's legacy is much much more present mm-hmm. in the book than it is in the film mm-hmm. right That these are um that there are connections to um that, that essentially the much of the family's wealth is, is founded on sexual exploitation right yeah. and ways and and one that gets that continues right or decisions that are um marriage decisions that are quite mercenary right sure. um, and so um that's a very different trajectory sure. you know the book itself also is very much done in flashbacks and um in many ways the heroine shelby the, the Halle Berry character in the film is almost like an empty center within the book right she's present, but she's not really the main story. It's almost like that's the narrative that you're following. Will will she or will she not get married? Um, But the story is really the story of her ancestors in the novel. Whereas in the film, I think, you know, it is much more focused on Hallie and this decision that she has to make. And it's framed, I think, in a much more late 20th, early 20th century kind of framework. You know, will I marry the white man with the black man? (laughs) And it's kind of about, you know, maybe a kind of racial authenticity, you know, which will she choose? And in many ways that is, um, that is often how black, the black middle class, is lampooned and continued to be lampooned. Mm-hmm. I think within, um, even within um, the more popular films like Tyler Perry, you know, films, and of course, um, there's even a, a new Martha's Vineyard wedding movie called Jumping the Broom that oh, right. mm-hmm. that, um, mm-hmm. that performs the same kind of things mm-hmm. in terms of um, lampooning the black middle class as assimilationist sellouts in many ways, right? Yeah. And I think you know, Dorothy West was trying to do more than that, right? It was yes. trying to both look at um, yes, there is this. Um, cost of, of separation, right. And these borders that do have to be policed mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, but there's also, um, there is still a sense of, again, of linked faith and, um, the complications of uplift, um, are still present.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, do you think, I'm just thinking, just like you said, um, you're drawing on another, you know, movie that's come out recently, and I'm wondering, uh, jump jump the broom I'm talking about, do you think it's easier to demonstrate the um, ambiguities of racial phenotype on the stage as opposed to on a movie screen?
1: You know, I think that's possible. And possibly just because within theater, mm-hmm. um you see more colorblind casting, mm-hmm. um, right? There's less of in theater. Or I don't know if you know, it's because of artifice or because it's just in the genre where, you know, there is not always the need mm-hmm. um, theres still sometimes the need right but not mm-hmm. always the need mm-hmm. to have the characters racially or racially visually um, represent what they are right so mm-hmm. you can have um I'm trying to think of some recent um I feel like there was a projection of lady Macbeth with Angela bassett or something like that, oh, is that right? and you know there are a few instances um where you see that I, I'm not colorblind casting isn't necessarily prevalent all the way along, but it is more prevalent in
0: theater than Mm -hmm. it
1: is in film where there's still that sense or that, um, dependence on, um, realism Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, in a way. mm -hmm. And I think it's that investment in realism that sometimes, um, means that you need to have characters, um, that if, that if audiences see these visual disjunctions, they won't believe them in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was one of the problems with the wedding. I do think, though, um, that that is probably changing. I almost wonder if the wedding was made today, if it might be cast very, I mean, obviously, there would be different people, but I think the the, um, the ideology behind the casting of that film might be very different. Sure. Because you have many um, actors and actresses now who really do exist in, as ambiguously plays mm-hmm. initially and, and sometimes fill um, different kinds of roles. Uh, um, people like Zoe Saldana or particularly a lot of Latino actresses and mm-hmm. Mary Beltran's done did a lot of work on that, um, the, the notion of the mixed race actor mm-hmm. as um, an as a, a, a actor that can appeal as a, a figure of mediation, right, mm-hmm. which is in some ways old, right? We know that these figures within fiction, right? We know that we've always had these characters that, um, in passing novels, right, um, particularly a lot of early African American fiction, we've had these characters that are trying to both embody black and white, engage empathy and sympathy on both sides. Mm-hmm. So, um, in some ways, that's not necessarily a new concept, mm-hmm. but it is definitely. Um, Uh, with language around issues, like if we are really post-race, for instance, can we then do colorblind ensemble casting? Right, right. So we do see some uh, some of that um, beginning to go on, I think, in
0: contemporary Mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. In terms of the color, though, in terms of – hello? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I thought the call dropped. All right. But in terms of color, this summer, I – This summer, last year, Sanaa Lathan was in a play on the stage called, By the Way, Meet Dara Stark. Oh. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. Yeah, she plays a maid to a starlet um, who, you know, long story short, in the end, the starlet is her first cousin. Hmm. and But everybody else, she's passing. Everybody else thinks that she's a white woman. She certainly identifies as a black woman, but is actually in private with between her and Sanaa. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of confusion about the different views of black people in the in the play. Um, So that's why I was, you know, that's what kind of um, fueled the question I had about whether it's easier to kind of get to some of the things that Dorothy West is Trying to the, the intricacies or the complexities of racial race, phenotypically, you, know, um, you know, that's where I was trying to go with that question. Um, the other thing, though, I, you know, just in terms of your response here, it got me thinking in terms of um, it would be possible or maybe the casting would be different today. I wonder, I wonder um, because, you know, recently had this book, The Help. And we have the book, and when we have the we also have the uh movie version and in the book, there's um a scene where one of the the maid's daughters is sent away, and it's clear that she's sent away because she's you know she's biracial or so fear that so fair that people can't believe that she's this maid's daughter yet still in the in the movie. There's absolutely no indication of that. The daughter does return in the movie, but she's a dark-skinned woman. So they completely erase the difference in color between Constantine and and her daughter. And so I'm wondering, you know, is it just that there's a legacy of um, sexual exploitation Uh, um, here in the U.S.? It's very difficult still to even talk about.
1: I do I think I think there's that legacy of sexual exploitation I also think there's a legacy of black female desirability Mm -hmm. right even in that way Mm -hmm. that is somehow seen as unbelievable right because Mm -hmm. if you have um if in the film I I remembered that I was I noticed I was I was betting that the film was not going to pick up on that right Uh Uh, one because it's a you know in a film you you condense things and it's a kind of it's a more complicated storyline right Mm -hmm. but I feel like it's one that that we could have inferred, right? sure. Sure. The reason why the daughter is so so much of a problem isn't just because she's uppity, yes, right? Right. But on her body is this evidence of mixed race, right? Yes. That somebody has possibly even the man of the house, right? Um, right. You know, right. Yeah, and this is, and that is a way in which, um, in which servants were regularly um, subjected to, going back to Strom Thurmond's daughter, yes. right? Yes. And it's a history that, as um, the Black community, that we're very familiar with, because we understand why there's a range of, t- of skin tones, right. Right? right? And I think that the assumption that somehow that would not be easily understandable within a mainstream, you know, society, is that they would somehow, that would be a mystery, right? How right. did she like, right? right. right. Um, and even within the book, they describe her, they don't really suggest that it's from, they actually, the book actually dismisses the possible sexual exploitation. That's right. Yeah, that's true. The book says, oh, she's kind of like a throwback child, right? right. You know, an earlier generation, right? Not, not the father of the heroine, right? right, right. He's maintained in terms of his integrity, mm-hmm. right? And I think in the film, possibly they could not have been able to maintain the integrity of the family mm-hmm. without that. Yeah. Um, and so I I, so I wasn't surprised to see that they substituted that um, in there because they were felt to have been this explanation. Whereas I think um, understanding of West Texas is that there, the, the explanation has been clear for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. That what put these women in jeopardy was not just, you know, evil mistresses, but it was, in fact, um, the consistent exploitation of the husbands as well, right? Mm-hmm. And that's also a story that we know and that Black women have told. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. Right. But yet it's not part of the, the story that the, the, the film or really the book wanted to get at.
0: Right. 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 She kind of shirked that part of, you know, it was clear that it was just kind of a dismissal. There was opportunity for her to talk about something there. But she um, talked about Catherine Stockett. She really did it. Um, yeah. So anyways, I guess the point that I was trying to make or just to kind of think about there asking you to kind of comment on is uh, A, the fact that this, these discussions of racial phenotype um, are not new. They still, they're still, they not new, they're not old, they're here. They're still with us right now. They're still present. And that um, Dorothy West was, was really trying to investigate those questions um, in ways that it seems that people aren't really um, getting at today. And I don't know if it's because of that translation into a movie screen that 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 exists. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So in your coda, you say that you wanted to quote offer a glimpse into the multiple geographies that um, Dorothy West inhabited and how those spaces shaped and were shaped by her writing. I think you did an amazing job. Um, you also say that you sought to understand the evolution of intra-racial class and color divisions over the course of the twentieth century. Did you find an evolution?
1: I, you know what? What my sense is that, and it's it's something that I I very I have a lot of ambivalence about. Is that um, within the Black community, those class divisions um, are widening um, in a way that or um, that they've, they've continued to widen, right? So not just in terms of the um, idea that in one group has had more success um, over time, which, you know, they have, but also that another group in, in many ways has remained stagnant and if any, in some ways even more circumscribed than before. And many people point to, um, you know, after the civil rights movement, that, you know, what integration did in terms of a term um, – um, that I've, I've heard just recently called bright flight,
0: Bright flight, <laughs> um, oh.
1: oh. right. I you kind of like the idea that, you know, after, um, in, you know, within black communities and once integration happened that the class of say people who are doctors or lawyers or teachers could now go live somewhere else, right. right. They didn't have to stay within the black community. And so resulted in those communities, um, losing the kind of, this is a, a theory of, of, um, Ghettoization, right? That right. lost certain kinds of role models, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, but then you know, what then was left in terms of advancement or achievement? Right. Um, like a
0: brain drain.
1: Uh, yeah, like mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah, um, it's complicated now because you also have a situation of uh, those same say professionals that may have fled, you know, in the eighties, returning, right? Yes, <laughs> um, returning to those communities as well. So I think that complicates things. So I, I do feel, however, though, that you know that there is, um, even though there are widening class divisions, that there is still, um, there is still a sense of, of linked fate that in many ways, I think many of the discussions, um, around post-race mm-hmm. have been, um, I feel like that's for some of the discussions, especially those, those discussions, um, that have, um, emerged, um, with regards to, people who want post-race to be a kind of frame for like blacks to somehow be individuals. Right. And Mm -hmm. that, that line of thinking, um, that there is this sense uh, that that's what the division is allowed, right. That, um, rather than, um, the kinds of critiques of the black middle class to sell out for uncle Tom's, um, there is maybe even a kind of shaking off of that kind of identification Mm -hmm. at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and personally, I mean, I think this is part of what's behind, um, the desire to, say, for instance, identify, um, well, I I guess the the changing identification of even the term mixed race, you know, has to mean something very different in the 21st century than it does um, in the 19th century, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Are you, uh, where people, I think, now maybe trying to show, not so much mixed race, but they say that they're bicultural, right? right? Two different cultures that have kind of blended, as opposed to, say, somebody in, um, like, you know, Harriet Jacobs, she was not bicultural, That's right? right?
0: Right, right. Even
1: though she was technically mixed race, right. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you know these issues of color and class, they're still they're still present, and so but there has been I, I would say you know, that they do they change over time. Sure. They change in response to the economic moment. Um, one of the groups of during this past recession, which which maybe is near of meeting to emerge out from yeah. was very devastating to the black middle class mm-hmm. who so much of their income was invested in property right I yeah. make something that west writes about all the time and so um there was this way in which again an example of almost like in the living is easy in which advancement um is tenuous and can be undermined yes, yes, um, yes. in a fell stroke so I guess what I, I guess now I'm wondering, well, has there been um, so an evolution, evolution. evolution? yeah. Right? I, mean, I think there has an <laughs> evolution, but it's not one that's a kind of linear movement, right? Uh, just as history is not linear, right, in terms of how it, we move through it. So I think, you know, there are changes, but I feel like that's why West writing does offer insight into thinking about class dynamics. Yeah. And tru- richly, even though, right, she's a writer from, say, who wrote, um. You know, fifty years, sixty years yeah, ago.
0: Yeah. Still so relevant. Still so pertinent. The, the themes that she's dealing with. Um. Even today. Well, Sheree, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um. Before we go, can you just tell us what you're working on now? What can we expect up from you soon?
1: Well, I think um, I'm a little bit of a breather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm continuing to work. You know, my um, work in the Harlem Renaissance. I'm, I'm hoping to put together a, a, an anthology, for teaching anthology, that oh. uh, of the companion to the Harlem Renaissance. Oh. Uh, I'm working on that um, now. I'm also really interested in terms of my ongoing interest in recovery. Uh, I've been thinking, um, it was very much inspired by um, Lois Brown's biography of Pauline Hopkins. And mm-hmm. I've been thinking about both Pauline Hopkins and also the sculptor Ammonia um, Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I've had this continual interest in visual culture and literary culture. And um, I'm not sure what form um, the latest project will take. It might actually be more of a creative form. I feel like the transition from writing um, my first book to a um, biography, which is a, somewhat of a different medium. Um, the literary critic um, has opened up for me, maybe different modes of writing and engagement. And so that might be the direction that my um, next recovery project
0: takes. Right. Well, listen, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you. And we wish you all the very best.
1: Thanks, Sherry.
0: You're listening to the interview series, new books in African-American studies. Today, I've been talking with Professor Shireen Sherrard-Johnson as she discusses her new book, Dorothy West's Paradise, a biography of class and color. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and I look forward to seeing you next time.